it's sort of a classic win-win-win. Like there's a consumer element, there's a store stocking element, there's a cost freight reduction element, and there's a big sustainability benefit as well. That's Dave Fedewa talking about the benefits of skinny design, the topic of this episode of McKinsey Talks Operations. Welcome to McKinsey Talks Operations, a podcast where the world's C-suite leaders and McKinsey experts cut through the noise and uncover how to create a new operational reality. I'm your host, Christian Johnson. Today's guests are Dave Fedewa, a partner based in Atlanta. Welcome, Dave. Leah Cabelli, a design expert based in San Francisco. Welcome, Leah. And Benedict Shepard, a partner based in London. Welcome to you, Benedict. So, what do we mean by skinny design? Happy to start there. A skinny design is perhaps too complex a term because we're simply saying make things smaller. Uh, and the reason why that's so important in 2023 is it brings not one, but four benefits. It means less material cost. It means less shipping cost. It means more product on the shelf, so fewer stockouts. And fourthly, and perhaps most importantly, it means less sustainable environmental impact as well. Thank you, Ben. So what I'm hearing is a big cost component, and I'm sure in the current environment, cost is a really big deal right now. I'm also hearing a sustainability element as well, and it sounds like there are also some commercial elements. So walk me through here. What is the big reason that we want to get things smaller and still be appealing for the consumer? Yeah, all through all three of those, I think there's a big angle in terms of saving freight is a an expense that has increased dramatically in the recent years. And there's an angle around the more of a product that I can get in the container or the truck, the less that truck costs per unit. And that's often overlooked in the design process for the product. So, you know, that's a big angle. There is also obviously an element around the less packaging I have, the less packaging material costs. And so that saves money as well. On the growth side, the more products I can get on the shelf as a retailer, the less I stock out. And stockouts are a common thing, and it's getting, in fact, harder to stay in stock in many cases. And so even an increase of 5 or 10% on the shelf can have a meaningful impact on sales. And so that's the growth side. And then sustainability, coming back to the freight and packaging element, obviously less packaging is good, but also less CO2, diesel, those kinds of things as I get more in the truck. And an example to bring that to life could be something as simple as shampoo. Shampoo is 90% water. So today people build a big bottle, they fill it with 90% water and a few chemicals. They put it on pallets, send it around the world, again, mainly shipping water, and then put it on a shelf in a Walmart or equivalent where most of the space is water. You may have noticed that water word coming up a few times. Imagine a different world. Imagine a world where instead you said, well, let's instead send out a dehydrated powder, much smaller packaging, so less material cost, less impact on the planet. We put it onto smaller transport vehicles, less impact on the planet. We put it onto a store where it takes up less space. And then still, when you use it at home and you go into the shower, it foams up and it's still a luxurious experience. So no hit on the consumer experience, but better on cost and certainly better for the planet. Just one example to make that, that a bit more real. That gets to a question I had when I heard the word smaller. And that is, how do we make this a good deal from the consumer's perspective? Yeah, I think this is interesting because I think with e-commerce becoming just much more prevalent, with big packaging and big canvas, you get a big advertising space to communicate your brand. But now with 
a kind of more e-commerce shopping and good picture online and a good review might be more important than big branding space on a big product. So there's opportunity to maybe even go to some degree brand agnostic. You'd really have to prove that your product is good and, and that's it's an opportunity to shrink it and still create appeal. Thank you, Leah. Let's also look from the retailer's perspective. So one of the things that Dave mentioned before was about stockouts, for example. So let's maybe walk through one of these products and think, what's the stockout problem we're facing right now and how that gets solved by creating a different package? And maybe even one where it's not a package, it's not a question of removing water. Maybe it's something where you're actually shipping water itself, but you're changing the shape of the package. That's where I'd like to understand some of the trade-offs and some of the benefits potentially for the different stakeholders here. We could start with water as an example. Water is one that's gone through an evolution recently and I think continues to. Obviously, bottled water is a popular beverage, and it started out in a larger, thicker bottle that was largely packaged in a matrix format. It has over time evolved, and it depends on the brand and the price point and things, but into smaller, thinner, lighter weight bottle packaged in more of a honeycomb format. So you may have noticed how it's, you know, they, they're offset. And, you know, that can be an increase to 10 to 15% in terms of cube efficiency or shelf holding power which means a lot. And so if I'm the retailer, what does that mean to me? It's a couple of things. One, obviously I have more on the shelf. And so if I have a delayed delivery or all of a sudden I have a spike in demand, I have 10 to 15% more on the shelf that I could sell versus what I would have had before. So that's meaningful lift. The second is as I go to stock that, the trip for the associate stocking the shelf is now 10 to 15% less because I'm getting more on that pallet jack as I go to stock. And so it has an impact there as well. And for those of you who are mathematics geeks out there, this is time to go back to high school because you'll remember circles, it's about a 78% packing efficiency, whereas squares and triangles can be 100%. So there might be a moment to go back, create something which is triangular, which actually stands out from the competition, allows 100%. And because a triangle is such a strong shape, also means that you have less things damaged when they're being shipped as well. So uh, let's, let's all go back to, uh, to high school geometry. <laughs> and even I'll take your three sides and go up a side. And people have seen, and I'm sure some of the listeners will have, have seen square bottles. And that's both interesting and different, but also a lot more cube efficient. That's one of the angles that some of the manufacturers are taking there. I would add one other interesting one I think everyone's seen is kind of the cool skinny cans. But it's a 12-ounce can, so same size. There's potentially a connotation to if I'm drinking a skinny beverage, it might make me look skinnier or make, help me get skinnier. <laughs> the human brain works in funny ways. But for sure, there is a benefit in terms of cube efficiency. And again, it's on the order of 10 to 12% that skinny can you know, just get more in a smaller space than the traditional kind of 12-ounce can. And so it's sort of a classic win-win-win. Like there's a consumer element, there's a store stocking element, there's a cost freight reduction element, and there's a big sustainability benefit as well. Thank you, Dave. I'd like to probe a little bit on some of the kind of nitty-gritty trade-offs in thinking about how companies have to change their mindset in the just real estate that they have on packaging for marketing. How can 
less real estate end up being higher value for a company? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Especially the skinnier you go, like, is it, do you have interior exterior spaces you can create, uh, you know, additional canvas for communicating or engaging with customers? You've been seeing a lot of QR codes. I think that's an interesting idea and can work on some products to engage with customers. On the other hand, for companies that might mean they need to upkeep content. And is it worth to do that for the potential little visits they see from customers? So it's kind of looking at what are the best opportunities? And then the third one is about claims. What kind of claims can companies make if this, if the real estate is sparse? And in terms of sustainability, we've learned that the more claims we can pay if they're credibly and they are actually, it's not greenwashing, but they can claim that this is fair trade, this is ethically sourced, and we're using sustainable packaging. That definitely has a big sort of impact on consumers and we've seen like a growth rate as well on that. So there is an opportunity to create more messaging, create QR codes, create ways to tell a distinctive story. And where the outside now has become maybe brand agnostic, you might see it with, you know, concepts like the Nike shoe box. One box is looking at not printing any logos on the outside, making sort of a stealthy exterior that, you know, strategic choice for security. They don't want this to be stolen out of a porch. But when you open it up, there is a real estate to engage with your customers to tell that story, to, to be have a point of differentiation there. So that raises a question to me, because if you're talking about shoeboxes, I walk into a standard retailer and I see every shoebox is the same, whether I'm wearing my size 10 and a half male foot or I'm buying something for someone who is much smaller than me. So how do we balance like the standardization versus reducing the the packaging? This might be less of a consumer's pain point, but I think when companies look at like shoe brands, look at like they have a variety of proliferation of boxes from a sandal type to a big work, like a boot or something. And they have to accommodate all the sizes from small, like from a 25 to a 42 And you would think like, okay, you want to create as little headspace for each of the shoe sizes as possible so that you're not shipping at extra air, but then then becomes a huge inventory uh, and skew management and a nightmare of managing all these different boxes. So there's kind of a trade-off between what is the right consolidation amount of boxes for inventory to keep within what's the acceptable headspace. And so there's that kind of fine range that you you have to figure out what that sweet spot is between how many few boxes can you make and, and how much can you keep headspace in check. And so the question that comes to my mind is, why haven't we already seen a lot more of this? Why aren't more companies actually doing this? If you think about the example of the shampoo, that touches a lot of people. You're looking at the engineers, you're looking at the designers, you're looking at people from a procurement point of view, from a supply chain point of view, from a logistics point of view, and from a sales point of view as well. All of those people have pretty different incentives in many organizations today. And therefore, one of the the challenges is how do you get cross-functional incentives so that everyone feels a sense of responsibility to deliver great material cost, great customer quality, and also consider logistics as well easy to say, hard to do. And we've seen examples of companies being very bold in terms of changing senior management incentives, two that have been public. The challenge is to do a balance between 
customer satisfaction and material cost and ESG impact, there are very few world-class examples to point to today. And I think that's a really exciting area for the next two or three years. Thank you, Ben. What do we think is different about companies that have been able to do this? What are they doing differently now? I think to build on Ben's comment, they're looking at the end-to-end and saying, how do I make this better? Not just for me, but for my customer. And maybe I'm two or three steps down the value chain. So maybe it's my customer's customer. And then how do I also make it better for the world, right? You know, I, I have to care deeply about sustainability. And I think companies that are looking at, for example, saying, how do I make a real impact on sustainability very quickly arrive at the conclusion that if I don't actually get into the product itself, it's going to be hard for me to move the needle in a real way on my total footprint. And so then they start looking into the product and say, okay, how can I do that? And then they, they take an end-to-end view and say, well, that includes freight and that includes what happens to the retailer and that includes what happens to the customer and ideally a completely circular view. They end up with a different answer. So if you think of a manufacturer on the one hand, a retailer on the other, where does the value tend to go? Who tends to get more value out of this sort of an effort? Who's got the immediate incentive to undertake this? This is often a no-brainer for the retailer because they often don't have to do too much. Really proactive supplier here will say, right, we'll do the exercise. It reduces cost, has ESG benefit. And by the time it reaches you, you can put more on the shelf. No one's going to say no to that. Terrific. Yeah, probably the brand still wanting to claim more space next to their competitors. So, And also there's this price premium, the bigger the package, the more price I can ask for. So if it's stacked next to my own products or competitive products, there's still probably that issue that needs to be solved. Balancing that with ESG, balancing that with other demands beyond just profitability and usability, is a very difficult piece. And this may sound like a simple suggestion, but if If every company could just start by coming together at the beginning of a new product brief and saying something like, purpose, people, profit, planet. Purpose, why are we doing this at all? People, does this actually deliver a better experience for our customers and their their end users? Profit, does it make financial sense to do this? And planet, not only does it leave us in the same neutral position, but let's set a higher bar. Let's say it leaves us in a better position. Those are the type of questions that the new generation of designers can and should be challenging their organizations with. And I say that to say, I don't think we should wait for policy changes. I don't think we should wait for ESG mandates. I think there's an extraordinary ability for the next generation to start having impact immediately as they enter the workforce this year. Yeah, I think that goes also working cross-functional, right? Designers with the products, making sure that they're not designing in isolation, just that packaging for something that's already been designed and they have no input over that, meaning like, There's ways of how you can nest products, how you can disassemble products and ship them stacked into each other. So therefore, how you actually design the product for shipment might really impact how much CO2 emissions you're putting out there versus packaging it tighter and again, getting more optimization with, you know, container utilization and all that. So I think there's an opportunity to think about how we redesign the product to make the packaging better as well and work across teams to do that standardize things as well, where it's similar sizes, all these kind of things. There is an interesting lesson to be learned from the pure play e-com players to some degree. And some of these are kind of arcane products, for example, on Amazon, where they do see the end-to-end impact, at least financially, right? But some are, are aware of 
the sustainability element, but certainly the growth and cost elements that we talked about earlier, they are well aware of and they see the full end to end because that's the way the pure play e-com supply chain works. And so you get examples. I'll give a funny example. We have a dog and we ordered a pooper scooper recently. So just think like long handle scoop at the bottom kind of thing that you'd go to the hardware store and lots of those kinds of products, right? But in terms of e-com, doesn't ship very well. And so this pooper scooper is designed so that the handle folds. There's a hinge in the middle of the handle that allows it to fold in half. So most of the market would say like, I don't really need a folding pooper scooper. <laughs> like, why are you adding the cost of that hinge and everything else? Like, it's fine. There's no tools. It doesn't bother me. I, I just unfold it the first time you use it and I'm good to go. It locks in, right? When you understand the implications of the end-to-end costs and the you know growth implications of being able to stock more of those because the handle folds in half, then you understand why you have a folding pooper scooper. And I give that example because that is in some ways the forefront of what we're talking about being led by a smaller niche of players who are very aware of the end-to-end impact. Thank you, Dave. So let's also take a look beyond fast-moving consumer products because this has an application in a lot of other examples as well, right? Absolutely. Another example from the world of hard goods DIY would be lawnmowers. And so especially as mowers have made the transition to electric, which is great for a whole variety of reasons. They are increasingly shipped from overseas. And as you do that, obviously, the costs of freight are become more important to manage. And as recently as a year ago, there was a very visual example of this in one of the big retailers where one competitor had four mowers in a stack underneath the beam on the shelf. The other competitor had very similar mower stacked up, same price point, only three mowers fit under the shelf. And the trick was how the handle nested with the body and how the wheels were assembled. And you could have probably put 15 mowers under that shelf if you made people assemble it from scratch. Problem with that is that's a terrible customer experience. So what you end up with in many cases in that world is I have to add cost to the bill of material because I need to make it a no tool, very easy, no tool assembly, less than five minute kind of thing. So I'm not hurting the customer experience. I more than recoup that added cost. I get a multiple on that and freight. But the trick to being able to do that is to have the accounting visibility to say, I can give you that added cost in your bill of material and you can spend it out of the freight savings that you're generating. And that is uncommon for many companies today to be able to do that. So based on that, it sounds like one of the key stakeholders that needs to be involved is the CFO, right? to get these incentives aligned and make sure that the accounting process supports this? The answer is absolutely on paper. In reality, what it means is cross-functional working. It means even if you didn't have a CFO and they're on holiday, you should have the people who are sitting in the logistics department, the people who are sitting in material costs, the people who are sitting in design working together. And one of the things that we saw is for those where they're working together in a town hall-like fashion versus in an ivory tower isolation, regardless of the incentives that finance put in place. If you have good collaboration, a lot of it will be solved operationally on the ground anyway. It's a nice enabler, but it's it's an and rather than the solution. 
And I think the CFO, but I think you need also, you know, if there's multiple brand owners within one big company, you, you have to make sure that all the brands are aligned on this as well and want to support and work cross-functionally and share some of their findings as well to be applied across maybe multiple brands, both the learnings and the savings from that. I think this is crucial. You're not only speaking of the internal stakeholders, but you're also trying to get the voice of, if you're a manufacturer, the voice of your retailer, the voice of your logistics partner, all of those partners need to get involved, right? That's exactly right. And some of you will have noticed about four years ago now, the Business Roundtable, which is a collection of the the most senior CEOs in the US, came together to even redefine what a company is. And for a long time, the old adage had been we were there to maximize shareholder value. I think everyone has now realized what a myopic definition that was. And as they were looking at the definition, they were saying, no, we have a responsibility to our employees, to our customers, to our suppliers, to broader society. And I think that onion-like thinking for people doing design work is absolutely critical. Excellent. Thank you, everyone, today. Thanks, Christian. Thank you, Christian. Thank you, Christian and everyone. You've been listening to McKinsey Talks Operations with me, Christian Johnson. And if you like what you've heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'll be back with a brand new episode in a couple of weeks.